Hey everyone, Pastor Anthony here. I'm recording this right now, the Tuesday after the sermon you're about to listen to got recorded. I wanted to give you a little heads up on the front end. Our recording system actually failed about 37 minutes into the sermon, and then our backup recording system wasn't working properly, so the last 20 minutes of the sermon, it's very poor audio quality. Normally, we just upload another Redemption sermon, like Redemption Tempe's, for instance, who, who did a great job with this uh, topic in the series. However, I preached on this huge topic of sex, and I think it's probably important for people to know uh, what I said in particular for our, our little local congregation to know. And so because of that and, and the different things that were said in the sermon, I thought it was important to upload the sermon as is. So we're sorry for the poor audio quality. It's especially disappointing because it's right when we begin to talk through some of the heavier topics in regards to sex and sin. So I, I would ask if you'd give me grace, as you may not hear every intonation and, and my heart behind some of those topics. So if some of those topics are something you need more clarification from me on, please feel free to reach out via email to sit down for a coffee or lunch sometime. So without further ado, though, I'll give you week three of our countercultural conviction series. All right. So we are in week three of our series called Countercultural Convictions. What we're doing in this series is we're going through some of our biblical convictions as a church and we're seeing how they're countercultural. The, the, the reality is there are just so many uh, convictions that, that we have as a church that run against the grain of culture. We're not trying to run against the grain of culture for the sake of running against the grain of culture. It just so happens that when Jesus is Lord and he comes into your life, he points out a lot of the idolatry, a lot of the practice that is really a symptom of our idolatrous worship in all these different ways. And so a lot of what God has for us in the Bible is countercultural. It's counter to the current culture we're in. And so uh, we're in week three of our series and we're talking about sex, okay? We're talking about sex. Not biological sex, but the act of sex, okay? So before we get into like where we're going today, how we're gonna do it, I wanna give the first massive countercultural idea that the Bible has about sex. The first massive countercultural idea that the Bible has about sex. Here it is. That no matter your sexual history, no matter the shame that you have around sex, God wants to cover your shame with his love and his forgiveness. That's countercultural. Like, no matter what you think about your sexuality, no matter what others think about your sexuality, no matter what you've done sexually, God wants to take any shame you have tied into the topic of sex, and he wants to cover it with his love. God wants to cover our shame. And you might say, why, Anthony, why are you bringing that? Why are you starting on a downer when it comes to sex and our sexuality? I don't have shame about my sexuality or whatever it might be. Here's what I know from being a human, from living on this earth, from talking to people about this topic a lot and how it strikes their life, so often sex, sexuality, sexual acts go hand in hand with a deep sense of shame. It's just true. There's a variety of ways that comes about. Some of us have kind of this scarlet letter shame, if you've ever read that book. Like the scarlet letter where this woman is ostracized because of the sexual act that she commits 
And so she's kind of ostracized in her society. So some of us have this scarlet letter shame where we feel, oh man, this thing I've done, my community knows about it, or my com- community says it's really bad, and I-, I feel this scarlet letter sort of shame because of what I've participated in. Some of us uh, feel shame around the topic of sex because we grew up being taught that sex is yucky, that it's mostly a bad thing. Some of us have shame around sex because, I, and I, bear with me in this, I think sometimes when we sin, be it sexual or non-sexual sin, we feel shame. Right? This is the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Like they, they sin for the first time and then they hide themselves and when they were once unashamed and naked, they all of a sudden become ashamed of their nakedness and I think they had a deep sense of shame because of the sin that they did. And so sometimes I think that when we sin sexually, we feel a, a level of shame because of that. And then unfortunately and horribly, a whole lot of us in the room feel shame around sex because we've been sinned against sexually that someone came into our life and they sinned against us sexually in a horrible way and, it, and we can't help but feel shame around the topic of sex, around thinking about sex, around sexual activity, whatever it might be. And so I wanted to start with that overarching idea that God wants to cover our shame. That is countercultural. Right? I think the culture would say, hey, don't worry, worry about your shame. It's not real. It's just a construct in your mind. And I think us in the church would say, who cares? Shame is a good thing. And what the Bible would say, what God would say is, he wants to cover your shame with his love. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done. That's the good news of the gospel. He doesn't want us living in shame around our s- sexual activity that we've, we've done or, or our sexuality. So, that's already probably freaking some of you out, and so let's flesh it out a little bit more. So this, this is kind of where we're going to go today, uh, is uh, the first movement. We're going to just read a whole bunch of passages from the Bible on sex. It's going to be the wide gamut of it. It's not every passage on sex. The Bible actually has a ton of passages on sex, if you're wondering. But we're going to read a good handful of them. That will take us a few minutes. And part of why I want to start us off there and just read through it is so that as we go and we're talking through this topic throughout the rest of the, of the day, that you'll, and when I reference certain things, you'll know, okay, that's in Scripture. That was where that was, that type of a thing. Okay, so that would be the first movement. The second movement is just taking a brief moment to look at what are the cultural views right now, the culture especially outside of the church, what are the cultural views on sex? What are those views, okay? And then the third movement is we're going to move into, okay, what does the Bible say about sex? And, and the big idea that I think the Bible is going to say about sex is sex is sacred because it points to something bigger than itself. And so the whole third part uh, of this sermon, we're going to be kind of looking at that. And then the fourth part of our sermon, we're going we're gonna to look at... Uh, some of the sinful distortions of sex. I, I want to say in our culture, but I, I just want to say in humanity, really. Some of the sinful distor- distortions uh, of sex in humanity. That, and, and honestly, what the Bible says about each of those is countercultural, and that's why we'll be going there. So 
Let's start off by just reading a bunch of passages uh, on sex. I I think I'm reading something like, I don't know, seven or eight passages. Uh, Some of it is part of the creation story, which is fundamental to understanding sex. And some of it is just flat out uh, passages about sex. Some of these passages will make you giggle a little bit more than other passages. And so it's going to take us a few minutes to go through these passages together. And I know that's not maybe like my typical teaching style or what we're used to, but sometimes I think it's good for us to just to allow God's word to kind of wash over us. The, the preacher in me or the teacher in me, I want to stop and go, well, that verse is confusing and I need to explain that and all that. And, and there's a, that I should do that most of the time, but today I won't be doing as much of that. So just to warn you that. So let me take a drink and then we're going to hop into the scripture together. It's going to be on the screen. It's probably too hard to flip through your phone or, or your Bibles if you brought them. So let's start with Genesis chapter 1. 27 and 28. I think we've read a portion of this verse every single week so far in our countercultural conviction series because creation has so much to say about culture, I think. So, uh, verse 27 says this So, <clears throat> God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now let's hop to Genesis chapter 2, 21 through 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, let's go to Song of Solomon's chapter 7, 6 through 12, and this is where the giggles will come, because it's a song between a man and a woman about their love, and in particular their physical love. He sings to her, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I'll climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Well, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. She responds, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. Let's read Proverbs 5. 18 to 19, some wisdom to husbands about how to love well. It says this, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now let's jump over to the New Testament. Let's start in Matthew. Jesus talking about lust. In chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For, it's, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Hebrews 13, 4 says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20 says this, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Okay, we'll stop there. You you guys did good. Not a single giggle. Good job. You guys are mature. Um, so the Bible says a lot about sex. We just read a whole bunch of passages about sex. Some of the passages at first, you're like, this sounds fun. This sounds awesome. And then some of the passages at the end, you go, whoa, 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 this sounds a little more scary, <laughs> a little more dangerous. And so the Bible says a lot about sex. We'll, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but first, I want to start by going, okay, what does our current culture think about sex? And again, I, I'm probably going to oversimplify a bit here. Um, but I think my oversimplifications do uh, represent culture, especially the culture outside the church, pretty well when it comes to sex. And I think there's kind of three broad categories, three broad ways that culture looks at sex right now and how they kind of view sex. And so the first kind of broad way that culture looks at sex, I would say, is kind of the, the we are just animals view. We are just animals view of sex. Okay, so like, listen, sex, it's no big deal. We're just animals just people, just bodies. It's no big deal. You're just giving in to your biological needs and wants and desires. Like, we're just animals. It's no big deal. Just animals, okay? That's kind of the first category. And so that's kind of what our culture says. It's no big deal. Who cares? Like, whatever. And, and, and then, in, in light of thinking all of that, we're just animals. It's no big deal. They kind of move over to this other category that I think a lot of our culture believes too. And they go, hey, yeah, it's no big deal, but sex is the best. Like, sex is amazing. Like, if you're not having sex, you need to be having sex. Unless you're asexual. But if you're not asexual, like, you need to be uh, using your sexuality however you want. Whatever your heart desires, you need to be chasing after it. Sure, be safe. Sure, make sure there's consent. But just, you have to be using your bodies however you want, whenever you want, however you want. Sex is the best, but it's no big deal. But it's the best, so you got to make sure you're having sex as much as you can. And if anybody says anything about your sex life or your sexuality, they're not only abusive, they're oppressive. And that's kind of the second broad 
uh, stroke that I think that culture has when it comes to sex and how they paint it in, in their eyes. Now, the third category I actually really agree with, and this kind of third category that our culture widely believes about sex is this, is sex is powerfully destructive and evil when there's no consent. Sex is powerfully destructive and evil when there's no consent. Okay, so we saw this in the Me Too movement, right? A lot of women coming forward, pointing out how powerful men had coerced them, bullied them, raped them, did all sorts of horrible things and put them in all sorts of horrible sexual situations simply because they had power over them in some way. And our society, and I'm thankful that our society said this, they said, that's wrong. That's evil. That's powerfully destructive to wield sex in that way, to use sexual activity in that way. And so this is kind of like the third broad uh, category that, that culture views sex. And, and I want to make a pastorally responsible aside right now before we go on. It, it really doesn't fit in the sermon, but if I don't say it, I will feel like I missed out on saying something important, okay? Here's what I want to say is this. Some of you are perpetrators of sexual crimes in this room. I hope that's not true. I pray that's not true. Statistically, though, it's probably true. Some of you are perpetrators of sexual abuse, sexual evil, sexual things being done to somebody. I don't know who you are. You know who you are. And as a pastor, I need, I need to say, you need to turn yourself in. You need to repent. You need to reconcile and repair wherever that's possible. Often, uh, that's really up to your victims and the law. You need to turn yourself in. I'm not trying to, uh, like, scare you into it because I know I can't scare you into it. I know I can't. But you need to turn yourself in. You need to stop the evil you're doing. You need to stop the destruction you're doing. Because I'll say this, although I think a lot of perpetrators of sexual sin are blind to their own sin or uh, have justified their own sin, I'll say this to you perpetrators in the room. It is better that you deal with the earthly consequences of your evil now than God deal with you on judgment day. I know, that's, uh, we're getting mean Anthony here or whatever, but I've just watched this unfold time and time again in people's lives, and I need to be clear. I'm not saying you can't be a Christian. I'm not saying God's grace isn't for you. I'm just saying you need to deal with your sin. A true repentance looks like turning away from that and stopping that and then becoming a minister of reconciliation and allowing God to bring reconciliation potentially through the damage you've done, okay? I, I just feel as a pastor, I have to say that especially when we're talking about how our culture has understood, I think rightfully, that sex is powerfully damaging and destructive when there isn't consent. Okay? So we get these views about culture, or we get these views from culture about sex. No big deal, we're just bodies, but make sure you're having as much as you can and have it every way you want to, and don't let anybody stop that. And also, though, uh, sex is can be powerfully destructive and damaging when there is no consent. So that's kind of 
some broad categories and on how our culture views sex. I'm sure you can think of some others, but that's kind of what I've noticed over the last handful of years. But I want to get into what does the Bible say about sex? That's what culture says about sex. What does the Bible say about sex? What is the Bible saying about sex? And here's my overarching idea for this part of the sermon is, I think that the Bible says that sex is sacred. It's something holy. It's something that God intended for creation. It is a good thing. It's sacred. And it's sacred because it points to something greater than itself. Sex itself, sexual acts itself, point to something greater than itself. And I think what sex points to is actually God himself. I think sex is a way for us to reflect God's image in his character and who he is, but also uh, in his work in this world. So I think sex is sacred because it points to something greater itself, and the thing it points to is God and his work in the world. Sex is a way to reflect God's image and his work in the world. So let's talk about, I have five different ways that sex does this. And the reason I want to go through this is a lot of times in the church, the way we view sex and the way we talk about sex is like, hey, that's just this rule. It's just this rule we have to follow. It's just this kind of arbitrary thing. And what I've realized is we don't have good theology around sex. Listen, I think that we should follow God's commands about sex, but we also should understand why those commands exist. And they exist because sex is sacred because sex points to something bigger than itself, God and his work. Okay, so I want to go through five different ways that I see sex doing this, all right? The first way is this. Sex is a window into the structure of creation, and the way that God created creation itself. Okay, so the creation story, it's told in pairs, if you've noticed that. There's light and darkness. There's water and land. There's male and female. There's heaven and earth. Some of the most beautiful things in the world are where those pairs meet. Think of light and darkness. When light and darkness meet... We get sunsets and sunrises, universally known as one of the most beautiful things ever. Think of water and land. Where water and land meet, we get beaches, where there's all sorts of beauty and life teeming there and vacation homes because we all agree this is a wonderful place. Not a whole lot of vacation homes in just a pile of sand, and I don't think there's any vacation homes in the middle of the ocean because those places are uninhabitable and boring. But when you bring those things together, when you bring those things together, great beauty happens. When male and female meet sexually, it should be beautiful. It's where great beauty happens. And that structure of creation that we see in these pairings throughout the creation story in Genesis, that structure of creation points to God's vision for the universe. It points to God's vision for the universe because it points to the fact that God always wanted there to be a unity between heaven and earth. 
Heaven in the Bible, uh, it kind of means all sorts of things. Sometimes it just means like space in the sky. But heaven in the Bible most often generally means, it's like shorthand for saying like where God exists. Like God himself, before he took on flesh and became Jesus, he's just spirit. He doesn't have a physical form. And so heaven in the Bible is where God exists. And what we see in the creation story, and in particular in the Garden of Eden, is God made a place where heaven and earth met, where they coexisted, where they were together. So the spiritual realm, or whatever you want to call it, maybe I'm not saying it quite right, but where God resided met where humanity could reside where the physical earth could reside. This is why when we read, uh, this is my own speculation, I think when Eve is talking to a talking serpent, we go, what's going on there? I don't think it was that surprising because I think there was probably all sorts of spiritual beings because Eden, in Eden, because Eden was this place where heaven and earth met. Okay, don't say I'm a heretic, I'm not. Um, and so the structure of creation itself points to what God's vision for, hum- for, for the universe is. That is a place of two pairs coming together meeting, heaven and earth, humanity and God together living with one another. That's God's vision for creation. It's beautiful, isn't it? God wants to be with us. He's wanted to be with us from the start. That was always his intent. And so sex between male and female is a picture of that. It's a view into the structure of creation where pairings meet and beauty happens and it points to the fact that God has always wanted heaven and earth to be united. I love what N.T. Wright says about this idea. He says this, the man and the woman together are a symbol of something which is profoundly true of creation as a whole. The the coming together of male and female is itself a signpost pointing to that great complementarity of God's whole creation, of heaven and earth belonging together. Sex points to God's structure for creation, God's intent for creation, okay? Here's the second thing that sex points to uh, that's bigger than itself. It points to the creating nature of our God. At times, sex reflects the image of our creator God by making a baby. And I don't think sex, every time uh, that sex happens, it needs to be for procreation. Some Christians think that. I would disagree with those Christians uh, for a variety of reasons. One, the brokenness of this world and of our bodies stop that at times. And then two, I think there is a wisdom in knowing what uh, you as a parent can steward uh, children-wise. Like how many kids can you really take care of and love well, okay? And so uh, I would disagree with Christians that say that every time you have sex it should be procreation should be a possibility Um, where I would agree with that crowd is I think children are always a blessing blessing no matter what Uh, but anyways that's not really has to do with my sermon but anyways sometimes when sex happens a baby is made this is a, a crazy way that we reflect our creator God God made humanity and through this act of sex we can make more humanity isn't that crazy? Like God so, much, so 
uh, so much wants us to reflect his image that even in how more humans are made, we are part of that process and we reflect our creator God through that process. And so at times, sex points to the creating nature of our God, that he created humanity in the image of himself. Okay? The third thing that sex points to is our covenant-making God. Our covenant-making God. In the Bible, God makes covenants with his people. When God makes a covenant with his people, what we're learning about covenants, it's like uh, often in the, in the ancient world, it was something a king made with a whole people. And the king's saying, hey, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure everything goes right as long as you hold up your side of the bargain. And what we have in God with his people, he says, I'm going to do all that and I'm going to uphold your side of the bargain as well. And we have a, co- a covenant God who makes these powerful promises these till death do us part promises with his people, and he marks covenants that he makes with a sign. In the Old Testament, uh, it's marked by circumcision. In the New Testament, it's marked by baptism. In marriage, marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant between two people saying, hey, I'm with you. I'm ride or die with you. Like, we are going to stay together no matter what. I'm going to uphold my side of this promise to love you. Right? That's what marriage is a picture of that. And sex itself is a sign of that covenant, is a reminder of that covenant. And so the act of sex points to our covenant-making God. This is why when someone cheats on someone else, Christian or not, I've noticed this. I have a lot of non-Christian friends. When someone cheats on someone else sexually, Adultery, in other words, it's so painful. Because I think baked into sex is this powerful connection. And I think that's there because God's covenants are powerful. And so when someone betrays that covenant by uh, making almost like a new covenant with someone else, it's painful for us just naturally. You can say, oh, it's because I was taught all these things. No, I just think naturally... Because sex points to our powerful covenant-making God, that when that is uh, attacked or misused or, or, or whatever, that it's painful because it's marring the image of our covenant-making God. Okay? So sex, uh, God's covenants are powerful, so sex. Sex points to our covenant-making God. The fourth thing that I think sex points to is our union with God. Our union with God. When, when sex happens between a man and a woman, they become one flesh. It says that in Scripture time and time again. We read some of those passages today. They become one flesh. Physically, we could kind of see like how that's true in, in the physical act of sex, but also something deeply spiritual is happening when any time someone gets married. They're becoming one flesh. Like they're becoming one in some way. They're becoming one. That's what marriage is, and that is a picture of our union with Christ. One of the, I think, most mind-blowing ideas throughout the New Testament is this idea of our union with Christ. Not only does Christ save us, but he makes us one with himself. We read about that in the Corinthians passage we read. But it is all throughout the New Testament, this idea that as Christ saves us, as we turn to him and follow him, he makes us one with him. 
We have a union with him. Sex is a beautiful picture of that union, of that oneness that we have with Christ. So sex exists to show us the oneness we have with God, the oneness that God wants to have with us. So sex points to our union with God. And it's a glorious union. It's the best union. The fifth and the last thing that I think sex points to is diversity in that union. Diversity within that union. Here's what I mean. God himself is diversity in union. He is father. He is son. He is spirit. And he is one. He's father, son, and spirit distinct, diverse from one another, if you will. And yet he's one. God himself has diversity in union in his character. And God, in his work of restoration, constantly is kind of doing this diversity and union thing. God is not just bringing one nation into his kingdom. He's bringing every nation into his kingdom. All tribes, all nations. God is uh, not just bringing in humanity, but he's connecting himself to humanity. A holy, set-apart God connecting to humanity. Christ himself is diversity in union. He is fully God and fully human. And then the end goal of restoration is, again, a reunification of heaven and earth. Two different places coming together making a diversity in union. So sex points to diversity in union because you have male and female coming together, diversity in union and becoming one. So sex points to God himself, the diversity in union in himself, but it also points to his work of restoration, which is constantly a picture of diversity in union. Okay? So, that's just five reasons why I think sex is sacred in the Bible. It's kind of, like, honestly, as you read the Bible and you read about sex and sexual activities, it's hard to move away from the Bible and say, well, the Bible doesn't really say sex is sacred. The Bible is absolutely communicating that sex is sacred. And it's sacred because it points to things far larger than itself. It's pointing to who God is. It's pointing to his work in the world. And so a lot of us have a bad theology around sex. We just go, hey, some of that stuff's the naughty stuff that we got to stay away from as Christians when where we should be founded on when it comes to our view of sex is this good sort of theology that points to the sacredness of sex and why sex is sacred. So if sex is sacred, uh, that means that when the Bible calls all sorts of sexual activities sin— They're sin not just because they're arbitrary rules made by God or humans or whatever, but they're sin because for some reason that sexual activity mars the image of God. It mars uh, the the image of God's work in the world. In some way, it uh, mars what sex is supposed to point to. Okay? So... I don't want to just avoid it. I don't want to just avoid talking about the different sexual activities that the Bible, I think, would say in our current culture and really in humanity uh, are sinful. I don't, I don't want to ignore it. I could as a preacher, and I'd feel a lot more peace in my life. But, um, 
But I, I want to go there because that's really where we find all the countercultural stuff, right? A lot of what I've said so far, even a non-Christian could come in and go, well, that's beautiful, that's nice. Maybe not all of it, but a lot of it. But where sex and the Bible becomes countercultural is what the Bible says about certain sexual activities and how those activities mar the image of sex being sacred because it points to God and his work in the world. So I want to talk through four, four kind of broad categories. There's more than this. Uh, four broad categories of sexual sin that's not just in our culture. It's in our midst. So let's be honest like that. It can be easy in this sort of series to be like, look out there. They're so bad. They're so naughty. No, like guys, we struggle with these sins. We deal with these sins. And often in the church, it's sad. We keep them just secret instead of dealing with them. My non-Christian friends, I at least admit to this stuff. So um, let's go through four different kind of categories or ways that I, I see humanity in this culture sinning. The first I want to look at is porn and lust and objectification are some of the ways that the sacredness of sex is marred. We know what porn is. We, we have a good idea of what lust is, the strong desire to have someone in a sinful way, I would say. And objectification is every time a human is used, uh, I think in every marketing ploy, is, is an objectification of, of humanity, especially when their bodies are what are being used to attract you to buy something. Those things are sin because they mar what God has done as a creator in making people in his image. Porn and lust and objectification cause people with the image of God on them to become objects for your pleasure. All of those things become, turn people not into image bearers of God, which every human is, but into objects for your pleasure. Or they turn people no longer into co-stewards in creation with you, but people that you just want power over and control over so you can be sexually happy. This is why we as Christians reject these things like porn and lust and objectification. We reject these things as Christians because they mar God's image on us. They mar how God wants us to treat sex as sacred. So that's why we reject those things. Porn damages. It destroys. Listen, I'll say this. We, uh, what all the studies show, like basically, uh, especially men, everyone's looking at porn. That's what, it's, what it seems like the studies are showing. I hope that's not true. But the vast majority of young men are looking at porn. The vast majority, I think, of men are looking at porn in some way. And, a, and a, a large amount of women are looking at porn as well. And so I don't want to say this to heap up an extra burden or make you feel more shameful or any of that. What I want to say is I want to lead you into who God has really created you to be. God's made you a new creation. And with that new creation identity comes a new sort of life. And so if you find yourself addicted to porn or occasionally using porn or whatever it might be, get some help. We have some avenues here at the church, but there are all a slew of avenues online that you can find to get help around this issue. And then I, I do want to encourage you this way. Again, this isn't a guilt trip, but it is something for you to think through. Porn is a justice issue. The rampant porn industry throughout the globe is literally part of sex trafficking and 
is literally part of sex trafficking and why it exists. Why it is, exists. And it's part of coercing women, forcing women, putting women in bad situations, and men too, but I think primarily women, into situations they don't want to be in, or they shouldn't be in. Like They, they shouldn't be put in these situations where they're damaged in these ways and hurt in these ways. Not all porn is like that. A lot of porn involves people who are consenting to do this stuff. But some of the studies show, like, probably about half of porn is in some level of coercion that's involved. It's a justice issue. I don't know. I, for me, that motivates me to not get involved in that stuff because I don't want to make the world a worse place. A lot of times we, we attack the porn issue by just going, well, my mind is worse and I'm being hurt and I'm hurting my relationships in my life. Well, you're hurting the world. You're hurting people. Yeah, I'm not trying to guilt you, but God cares about justice, and we as Christians are supposed to fight for justice in this world, God's vision of justice. And porn is a justice issue. Thanks, Jackson. <laughs> and so, I get help in that area, but it objectifies. It hurts. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, another kind of category of, of sexual sin is sexual activities of any sort before marriage to sort the image of covenant and union. This is where we as Christians kind of often kind of go, well, well, how far can I go? Like, what does the Bible say with that and all this kind of stuff? I really think sexual activities of any sort before marriage, outside of marriage, is not what God has for us because it distorts the image of covenant and union. God doesn't dabble in making covenants with us. He makes a powerful covenant that he's going to uphold no matter what. Doesn't, God doesn't come, uh, become somewhat united with us. He becomes fully united with us, even now in our sin before the resurrection. And so when people are, oh man, Christians are crude or, or whatever, like sexual activities of any sort take away from those picture, that picture that sex is supposed to be of covenant and you. Does that make sense? Alright. Let's keep going. Uh, the, the third thing is sexual activities without your spouse otherwise known as adultery, is a violation of the picture of an unbreaking covenant. God has an unbreaking covenant with us. And so when you participate in sexual activities without your spouse, you are uh, looking more like idolatrous Israel who turned from God away from him time and time again, and less like faithful Jesus. So if that's you, you need to turn and repent and reconcile so, those are the first three. The fourth, the fourth category is the one I'm sure all of you want. Is anything to talk about this? Is anything to talk about this? What about this? Let's talk about, let's talk about being gay. Let's talk about homosexuality. I don't like using the term homosexuality because I have gay friends and none of them are saying that word anymore. And that word feels bigoted to them a lot of times. So a lot of times Christians want to say, well, what do you believe about homosexuality? And, and, and I go, well, okay, this is the that word. It's like my, my gay friends aren't a big fan of that word. So let's talk about this. What does the Bible say about same-sex actions, same-sex behaviors? Before, before we get there, I, 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 I need to start here. And I need to start here because I know it's where a lot of us in the room are wrestling with right now or have wrestled with. I grew up in the church. And how the church loved gay people and talked about gay people was one of my first major dissonances I had as I 
I probably have a bunch, honestly. <laughs> but this was one of my first major dissonances. A dissonance saying, like, something's not right here. Something's not adding up. And part of that was because I heard some of these sermons about loving our neighbor, loving everyone, that everybody is a sinner. And then the dissonance I was having was when I was around Christians all the time for many years, the way they talked about gay people was horrible. It was atrocious. It was as if they didn't even know any gay people, the way that they would describe gay people. They would have all sorts of derogatory words in Christian circles to use about towards gay people. And I had this dissonance because uh, I, I met some gay people. I went to public school. And especially in ninth grade, I began to meet gay people and they were nothing like the caricature that the evangelical churches that I was a part of growing up would describe them as. They were nothing like them. They were wonderful people. They were amazing people. They were often way better than a lot of the Christian people I knew. And this caused a dissonance in me. It caused me to go, what's going on with the church? They say all this stuff about love. They say all this stuff about loving people. They say all this stuff about how we're all sinners. And yet, many of the people I knew in the church, not all of them, but many of the people I knew in the church, it was like they hated gay people. It's like they were disgusted by gay people. And it was really hard for me. It was hard for me because they're, they're made in the image of God. I was having this dissonance because I believed some of their theology. I believed their theology that people were made in the image of God. But I saw an inconsistency in their other theology. And when you get to that place, you start to go, if they're wrong about this, what else is the church wrong about? I'm just being honest. You start to go, man, if they're wrong about this, what else is the church wrong about? What else are they doing wrong? Why are they like this? Why is the church like this? Isn't this even real? And I know that for a lot of us in here, that's where you are right now. You're going, I don't know. And based on what I say, will be based on, like, you will either stay in this church or leave this church and, and, and leave thinking I'm a bigot. And I get it. I get it because I've been there. I've felt those feelings before. And here's what I have to say to that person and those people in the room that are feeling that distance at times in the church. You need to wrestle with it. You need to wrestle with that distance. You need to find out what you really believe by your faith. If you believe Jesus really is God in the flesh, are you really trying to follow him? Because Jesus had a high view of scripture that we can see throughout the Gospels. He thought it was God's word. He thought it was God breathed. He spoke about it as if it was God breathed. And so you have to wrestle with that. You have to start there. You have to go, is this, am I following Jesus in this way? Do I think this about him? And then you have to move on and go, is the Bible God breathed? Do I really believe the Bible is God breathed? Do I think his word is his word? 
and has authority and a witness in our life. You have to wrestle with that and you have to figure out where you're at with that. Because the reality is, if you can't figure that out, if you can't get past that, everything I say in the rest of the sermon just won't make sense. Or it will sound bigoted. Or it will be horrible. So, all that being said, I, what does the Bible say about same-sex actions? A, a lot of times what people ask me, they'll, they'll say, they'll phrase the question kind of like this, well, what, do you, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? I, I love to start by saying, the Bible says a lot of things about my sexuality. And we should be saying a lot of things about American sexuality in general. And that's where often I start. But... I, I do move towards and go, okay, what, what do I think the Bible says about being gay? What do I think the Bible says about same-sex actions? I think the Bible says this, that same-sexual acts are sin. Same-sexual actions are sin. I, I think that's what the Bible is going to do. That they're not what God intended for his people, and that they mar the image of diversity in unity. They mar the image of male and female come together to show diversity in unity. That sex is closely linked to. So I think same sexual actions are sin. I think the Bible says that. But some things with this. We as a church need to stop the stigmatization of same sex attractive people, of gay people, of Christians who are same sex attractive. We need to stop the stigmatization. Often in these spaces, gay people are seen as other, as worse, as whatever. And we need to stop it for a whole lot of reasons. We need to stop the stigmatization of, of gay people. Gay people are not problems to be solved. Gay people are people to be loved. The next thing I would say about this is we have to be careful as a church not to condemn the inward attraction. The inward attraction. The Bible says, I think, a good amount about same sexual activity. It doesn't say, I think, anything about the inward attraction. And so a lot of us in our circles, we want to condemn people for having an inward attraction that they have no control over. Most gay people I know say, I've just always been attracted to the same biological sex. And I say most gay people because I do know some gay people who said, like, well, I stepped into this lifestyle. But the vast majority of gay people are like, this isn't a choice for me at all. This is just who I am. This is how, who I've always been. And so we have to be careful to not condemn the inward attraction because I don't know how it gets there or why it's there or what, what, why it's there at all. But a lot of times as Christians, we can condemn that when the Bible doesn't condemn it at all. It doesn't even talk about that. It talks about what you do with that attraction, what you do with your actions, what you do with your bodies. But it doesn't really talk about the inward attraction very much, or at all. So we need to be careful not to condemn the inward attraction. And also, I think some of us need to be a little bit more sexually secure in ourselves and realize that sexuality... It's kind of a crazy, mind-boggling thing. And that if we are honest with ourselves, there, there's a lot of weird things in our heart around our sexuality for each of us. You guys are like, no, not me. Um, it's just sexual insecurity. Um, or maybe it's not you. 
But, um, okay, the next thing I would say about this topic is do some deep study on this topic. Do some deep study on this topic. Here's the thing. There are a lot of Christians out there and a lot of Christian authors that are saying, hey, the Bible doesn't really say that. It doesn't really say same-sex actions are sin. There's a lot of Christians out there. There's a lot of churches out there that believe that. This is it. There's documentaries. There's all sorts of stuff. Watch it all. Watch everything. Do some deep study. Because I, we honestly could do a whole sermon looking at that stuff and looking at it more closely. But you, you need to do some deep study on that stuff. And you need to come to the conclusion about what the Bible is saying about those things. Because the Bible is saying something. I've said very often, even if I was an atheist and I was trying to figure out what the Bible was saying about same-sex actions, I think I would land wherever I am. That, that, that's what the Bible is communicating, but an atheist, an atheist doesn't think the Bible is God's word. So, but I'm just saying that I think that is what the Bible is communicating. And, and part, of the reason, uh, part of the reason some Christians are, are going that direction, those books and resources exist in those ways, saying, hey, this isn't uh, actually uh, spoken against in the Bible, is because, you know, the words in Greek, in Timothy and Corinthian, they're really tough to translate words. So I'm just going to be honest with you here right now. Like, they're tough to translate words. Like, there is some merit. I, I hesitate to say that. There is some merit to their argument, at least with Timothy and Corinthians. I, I don't think there's a lot of merit to the Romans. One argument that I've, I've heard of these kinds of things. But all that being said, do the study. Look at the Greek. Read a lot about it. Find authors that talk about it. One of my favorite books in the world is called People to be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. Read that book. He does a deep dive into those words. And he tries to also give voice to those that would say they're in the affirming camp, saying, hey, I don't think the Bible actually says this. Do deep study. And hopefully you're doing deep study saying, hey, I want to submit to what God is actually saying, not what my heart wants, not what culture wants of me. Do deep study on this topic. Okay, the next thing I would say in regards to this is worry about the slew of other sexual sins that we as the church do. I'm not saying don't worry about same-sex actions at all. I'm just saying you need to worry about all of the slew of other sexual sins that so many of us commit and ignore and affirm. Right? This situation often is a, well, there's a, a, there's a speck in their eye when there's a giant plank sticking out of our eye. That's a problem. That's inconsistent. That's hypocrisy. That leads young guys in high school like myself to have a dissonance when I was in high school. Because it's hypocritical. It's worse than it. Okay, the final, the final thing I would say is this. Be a different sort of American Christian. Be a different sort of American Christian. Here's what I mean. I know a guy who had a gay friend. They were in class together. And, and this guy... Christian guy, he had a bracelet and said the word grace. And his gay friend asked him, hey, what does your bracelet mean? Like, what does grace mean? And, and this guy explains what, what grace means. Grace is God, just our free gift of his love for us, brings us in based on no work of our own. And, and the gay person's response to this person was, oh wow, I didn't know you were a Christian. Because you're too nice. Kind. The bar is low. The bar is low. For Christians, 
who are supposed to be the greatest loving people in the world. The, the bar for loving gay people should be extremely high. Even with these beliefs that are conflicting to culture and countercultural, the world should be able to look at us and go, you know who really loves gay people really well? Christians. That's where we're supposed to be. And we can only be there by the power of the Spirit. But that's what God is calling us to. Be a different sort of American Christian. That the world will be able to look at you and go, man, that guy's a Christian. He has a lot of crazy beliefs that I don't agree with, but I know he loves people deeply and tremendously more than anyone else. Be that sort of Christian. Anchored in the gospel as your strength and in the spirit as your strength. And I, I also want to say, hey, I know there's same-sex attracted people in the room right now. I know this is really painful. I know this is really hard. I know that this place often doesn't feel like you have a place here. And I want to say, you do have a place here. We love you. We want to walk through this with you. We, you're going to have to give us grace because a lot of us are coming from deficits and not knowing how to love gay people well. But we want to love you well and care for you well. And at least to me, you can be open and honest about your sexuality. And the rest of us have to be able to bear that burden of how hard this might be to walk out for people that are same sex attracted and, and to be biblically faithful. We as the rest of the church have to figure out how to bear that burden. Okay. So the Bible says a lot about sex. And I don't want us walking away from here thinking we're too far from God because of the sexual activities uh, that we desire, that we've participated in. It's, it's just not true. We're not too far. From God because of those things. God moved from heaven to earth to get to you, to become one with you, because He loves you. None of us are too far from God. His blood is paid for your sins. His resurrection makes you a new creation. Too many of us have taken the biblical ethics around sex and we've made them a barrier to God. It's just not true. Those things are not a barrier to God. But the Bible does have biblical ethics around sex that we should follow and look to submit to. Because just about all of them, and just about all of them are countercultural, which makes it difficult in this time and place. So may we be a people that allow Jesus to be Lord over our sexuality. Amen, church. Amen. God, thank you so much. For sex. Thank you for what it is. Thank you for what it points to. God, forgive us for all the ways that we want that. God, help us to be convicted. I think I get the sense that maybe there's a good handful of us that need to be convicted in this area for some reason. God, I want to pray for the same sex attractor in the room. Strengthen them. Love them. Give them a, a double portion of your love and them an extra anointing to hear from your spirit. In the places where they feel pain, bring healing. In the places where they feel confusion, bring clarity. And God, make us a church that submits our sexuality to you, whatever that means. And make us a church that loves those in the gay community well. 
and not just the gay community, but any sort of sexuality that might freak us out, or is coming down the pipeline in our culture at some point that will freak us out, God, would you help us to be a people that love well and point people to you and draw people to you in gentleness, mercy, and love? Holy Spirit, we need you for all of that work. We can't do it on our own. We love you.